Bible prophesied of a unique time on earth, Israel would be returned to her land, the church would turn to false doctrines, technology would increase, and wickedness and immorality would run rampant. The time spoken of so long ago has come. Join Charlie Garrett as he breaks down these events for us as they unfold each week. It is not Sunday. It's actually a Friday, but I'm doing the Prophecy Update of the Week early because I have somewhere to go. I'm going to have somebody uh, filling in for a Prophecy Update in two sermons, but to keep him from overworking, I'm doing a Prophecy Update early. And so I thought what I would do rather than a regular Prophecy Update is get rid of an issue that all of us have struggled with at some time or another and that many people still struggle with a great deal. And that deals with the day of Jesus' crucifixion, okay? It's something that is highly misrepresented. It's something that is uh, mishandled. It's something that people add in traditions. They add in things that are not in the Bible, and that causes a great deal of confusion. And so just to have this out of the way, and so that instead of answering a million questions every year at Easter, Resurrection Day time, I can simply you know, uh, send the link to this video and not have to worry about it. So what I'm going to do first is to go through some misconceptions that have been put forth or that people have, uh, they've just not understood what the terminology of the Bible is speaking about, etc. I'm going to get rid of those at the beginning. And that way, when we get into the actual timeline of the last week of Jesus, his Passion Week, prior to his crucifixion, then we'll have these misconceptions already out of the way. So here we go. The first major misconception is the sign of Jonah. That's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Okay, Matthew 12, 40. Let me read you the verse. It says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, the sign of Jonah is not the time in the belly of the great fish. That's the misconception right there. It is the message that he preached and which will be rejected. That is the sign of Jonah. Jonah cried out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. As is consistent in the Bible, it was a warning, a day for a year. Israel would be destroyed in 40 years. This is what Jesus is referring to. Now, if you don't understand what I talk about in this sign of Jonah, go back and watch our Jonah sermons. One, you'll have a great time watching them. And two, I go through it in detail. With a cursory look at Jesus' words in Matthew, the sign seems to be his death and resurrection. But Luke leaves out both the time frame and the entire account of the fish. And when he does this, he clears up the context that the sign of Jonah is the preaching. And what that preaching stated, the destruction was decreed in 40 days, a day for a year means 40 years. The preaching to the Ninevites was the sign. When Israel disobeyed in the wilderness, they were given a day for a year punishment for every day that the spies were gone. It turned out 40 days they were gone and thus 40 years of punishment for Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 4, he was told to lay on his right side for 40 days, signifying a year of punishment for Judah. A year of punishment for 40 days, equaling 40 years for Judah. He was told to do the same for his left side, but for a 390-day period. It was a day for a year for the house of Israel. 
Together, they form a prophetic basis, actually, for the return of Israel in 1948. I talk about that in Prophecy Update number 88. Go back and watch that, and you'll know what I'm talking about. In 40 years after Jesus' words, a day for a year, Israel was destroyed and carried away exile. The Romans came in and did what Nineveh was spared of. God's judgment fell heavily upon them for failing to repent, receive their long-awaited Messiah, and conform to the will of God, which is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Finished means finished. We're not under the law. We don't observe any of the law of Moses anymore. We are free from those constraints. Rather, we are under grace. Read your New Testament epistles, study to show yourself approved, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. B, our second point under misconceptions is for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Guess what? This is the most misunderstood of all of the verses concerning this issue. And because of it, we have probably 99.927364% of our errors of the day that Jesus was crucified. This is what is known as an idiomatic expression. It does not mean literally three days and three nights. Now, don't shut off right now. I'm going to explain this and then you will fully understand it. It is a misunderstanding of the phrase as it is related to biblical time. It's important to note that this verse is from Matthew and is directed to the Jewish people, Jesus as the king. Hebrew idioms would have been understood and not needed any clarification or verbal amending at all. To the audience Matthew was writing to, any part of a day is considered to be inclusive of the entire day. It's no different than the terminology that we use even to this day. If I arrive in Florida, wonderful Sarasota, Florida, on a plane at 11.30 p.m. on 11 April, during a later conversation, I will still say that I was in Florida on that day. The biblical pattern of evening and morning being a day goes back to the very first chapter of the Bible, and it includes an entire day, regardless of what part of a day one is referring to. Now, if you want to understand the term day and night as an idiomatic expression, simply type in day and night into your Bible search engine on the internet and see how many times throughout the Bible this term is used in this way. It goes on and on and on. Jeremiah in particular does a great job of using it this way. So study, show yourself approved and understand that it is an idiomatic expression. But there is more. This same verse, as recorded in Luke, says, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed... A greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Here it comes. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. That shows us that the sign of Jonah is the preaching, but it's also speaking of the other issue that we're going through right now. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. As you can see, Jesus explicitly states that the sign is the preaching of Jonah. In this instance, Luke was not writing to only the Jewish people, but predominantly his 
gospel record would be written to the non-Jewish people, Jesus as the Son of Man. Therefore, the terminology is amended to avoid confusion. This occurs many times in the Gospels, and therefore the addressees, or the background of the writers themselves, needs to be identified to understand proper terminology. Now, the same phrase, as far as three days and three nights, which we're talking about in Matthew 12:40, the same phrase is used in the book of Esther, and it is intended in the book of Esther to lead us to an understanding of what Jesus is saying in the book of Matthew. Here's what it says from Esther 4, verse 16. Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is actually then explained in Esther 5, verse 1, and it is explaining the exact same thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, 40. It says there, now it happened on the third day, Beyom Hashalishi, not after three days. She just said that they're going to fast three days, night and day, and it didn't happen. It's on the third day, Beyom Hashalishi, that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. As you can see, what she said in verse 416 is explained as an idiomatic expression in verse 5-1. This same phrase, Beyom Hashalishi, or in the Greek, on the third day, a Hebrew or Greek, it's the same, is repeated exactly 13 times in the New Testament, on the third day, not after the third day. Jesus was using an idiomatic expression in his words of Matthew 12, 40, and there will be more to support this as we go on. Secondly, the term high Sabbath. This is another misconception that people insert into their theology in order to come to a wrong day conclusion concerning what day Jesus was crucified. This is John 19, 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The second issue to be resolved is that some scholars claim that John appears to place the crucifixion on a different date than the other writers. And because of this, an attempt to insert some type of second Passover meal or a second Sabbath into the Bible is what they are attempting to do. This supposedly helps the Bible out of an apparent problem. However, and please understand this, no such meal or no such Sabbath is identified in the Bible at any time nor is it necessary to make something erroneous like this up. The Bible identifies the timing of the entire Passion Week very, very clearly dispelling this problem. The terminology for preparation day, it's a term that is used in all four of the Gospels, absolutely clears this up, and it will be noted as we go on in just a couple minutes. The terminology for high Sabbath, though, which is what we're looking at, is pointing to the fact that the Sabbath, and please understand, there is only one Sabbath. It is Saturday. It coincided with the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a holy convocation according to Exodus 12, verse 16, and Leviticus 23, 7. 
Now, I want you to understand that the feasts of the Lord, everything about them is detailed first in the Old Testament. We don't make stuff up and insert it into the New Testament. If you want to understand what is going on in the feast of the Lord, you go back and you research there. Exodus 12, verse 16 speaks of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as does Leviticus 23, 7. Now, there are only six times in the Bible that something is called a Shabbat Shabbaton, or a Sabbath of complete rest, meaning a true Sabbath day. Four of them speak of the seventh day Sabbath during the week. One of them concerns the Day of Atonement, and the last speaks of the seventh year Sabbath rest for the land. And that is it. Those are the only Sabbaths which are identified in Scripture. Thus, there is no, no second Sabbath. A holy convocation, which is the first day of unleavened bread. You've got Passover and then unleavened bread, which goes for seven days. A holy convocation is not a Sabbath. People will say, well, that's a Sabbath, and so it's a high Sabbath. That is absolutely incorrect. On a Sabbath, meals could not be prepared. That is a Sabbath of complete rest, Shabbat Shabbaton. However, in Exodus 12, verse 16, it says this, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. Thus, a holy convocation, unless it is specifically stated as a Sabbath of complete rest, is not a Sabbath day, and this is not a Sabbath of complete rest. It is not a Sabbath. We cannot make that error there. Three, four days. The term four days is used by people to come to wrong conclusions. This is Exodus 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. This requirement, which is in Exodus 12.3, has absolutely nothing to do with the Passover at Jesus' time. Nothing. Nothing in Scripture can be used to justify what is commonly taught, saying that the Passover lamb was selected each year to test for its defects. And they did it four days in advance, and it was kept in the house, and they would monitor it to make sure it didn't have any defects. That is absolutely false. That is unscriptural. It is not true. The lamb was selected because it had no defects. Thus, it has nothing to do with Palm Sunday. People will say, well, he was chosen on Palm Sunday and they had to monitor him for four days. And so they come up with an erroneous date for the date of the crucifixion. Absolutely incorrect. It has nothing to do with Palm Sunday and the subsequent days which lead up to the Passover. Rather, this animal was selected early in the Exodus account to ensure that every household had a lamb before the plague of darkness, which fell on Egypt. It is never mandated again. People bought their lambs in Jerusalem from keepers of the flock who already inspected them. Further, they did it within a day of the Passover. They did not do it four days in advance and have them live in their house and make sure the lamb was a perfect animal and all that. Those animals were already inspected for perfection before they went up for sale and the people went down to Jerusalem, bought them, had them sacrificed, and then had the Passover. There are four things that occurred in the very first Passover in Exodus that are not required in the annual celebration found in Leviticus 23. As I said, Leviticus 23 gives you the details for the feasts of the Lord. If it's not in there, somebody's adding something into Scripture to come to an unjustified conclusion. 
The first one is the eating of the lamb in their houses as they were dispersed through Goshen. That never happened again. The second is the taking the lamb on the 10th day. The reason was because of the plague of darkness that never occurred again in Jewish history. The third is the striking of its blood on the doorposts and lintels of their houses. There was one Passover that never occurred again. And fourth is their eating it in haste. Those four things never occurred again. There is no biblical support of it, but people have picked and chosen selected verses without following through on the study to come to an incorrect conclusion on this matter. Now we've got the misconceptions out of the way, we can go to the chronology of events. And this is going to be a lot easier for me to do over on the blackboard. So we're going to go over there now. So here we are at the blackboard. I'm erasing some notes from the Bible study we did last night. If you notice, we're in Esther 1, 1 through 12 this Sunday, which is when you watched this a couple Sundays ago. It's entitled Nadi Vashti, A Party Gone Bad. If you want to know about Esther, it's a wonderful book. There are some real wonderful mysteries. I encourage you to watch these Esther sermons. Go back and watch the first one and then come back and keep watching them with us because you'll really love it. Anyway, let me uh, get you the information that you need. This is the chronology of events which occurred prior to the Passover, leading up to the Passover, which is the day that Christ was crucified. One, the easiest way to identify the Passover from the Gospels is by reviewing the term preparation day. I said that a minute ago. I'm going to say it again. It's a very important thing. All four Gospels include the term preparation day, okay? This is something I've never seen anybody else come to this conclusion, but once you identify preparation day from the four Gospels, you're going to come to no other conclusion biblically that Christ was crucified on a Friday. Here's what it says. Matthew 27, verse 62. What I'll do is I'll say preparation day, which is the day of the cross. We'll make it a P there, okay? And then we're going to say the day after that, because I already know it's correct, is a Sabbath. So we're going to give it an S. And then we'll call the um, next day of the week the first day of the week, because that's a Sunday, but I don't want to have two S's and confuse you. So we've got preparation day, Sabbath, Friday, and then we'll go to Thursday before, just in case we need to see that one as well. Okay, Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, okay? So this is the day after preparation day, right here. The one after preparation day. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. This was the day after the crucifixion, which is right here. Matthew says it is the day after preparation day. I've already assumed that it's a Sabbath day. I know it is, but just go with me on this and you'll see it as well. After this is recorded the day after the Sabbath in Matthew. That's Matthew 28, verse 1, which is the first day of the week. So we know that this is correct here because he identifies preparation day, then the Sabbath, which we will see the Sabbath in a minute, but he identifies the day after that as the first day of the week. No way to get around that one there. Okay, the next one is from Mark. Mark 15, verse 42. He says, it was preparation day. That is the day, guess what he says, before the Sabbath. This is Mark saying it's the day before the Sabbath. Now, remember what I told you earlier. There is no such thing as a second Sabbath. The fact is that this is the day of the cross. This is Passover. We'll put a little P here. And then the reason why it's called a high Sabbath is because it happens on the first day of unleavened bread. So I'll put a U there, P-U, because some people's doctrine are P-U. You have Passover, you have unleavened bread. It's called a high Sabbath 
because it occurred on a holy convocation, a Sabbath and a holy convocation, not two Sabbaths. So this is the day of the crucifixion. I'll read it again. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Mark says it was preparation day right here. Mark 14 ends, guess what? On the night of Christ's time in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is Mark 14 ending right here. All right, so we've got that out of the way. Mark 15.1 then identifies that it is immediately in the morning, meaning preparation day. So we have a timeline that's being built right here from the Gospels. We're not inserting any non-biblical garbage that people want to insert or incorrect presuppositions. We're going with what the Gospel says. We go on to Luke. Luke 23, verse 5 says, It was preparation day right here, and the Sabbath was about to begin. So we have Luke confirming that as well. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. All right? This is the day of the crucifixion. Luke says it was preparation day. Luke 23, 55 then says that they rested on the Sabbath right here. Got a little arrow pointing there already. And then he was raised on the day after the Sabbath, this day of the week right here. We'll give Luke a little arrow right there. Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. That is Luke 24, verse 1 right here. So we've got all of this evidence so far. We haven't fudged anything. We haven't made anything up. We're not going with presuppositions that somebody taught us incorrectly. John 19, verse 14. Now it was preparation day. Day of the Passover. This is the day of the crucifixion. John says it was preparation day. So we have each of these, and then we're going to get a chronology from John and Mark to get us to this day as well. This is definitively right here. And without any chance of coming to any other conclusion than what we've come at, it identifies the day as a Friday. It's followed by a Saturday, which is a Sabbath day. And as I said, this is denied by many, many people. But this is what the Bible teaches. This is exactly what's in the Bible. You can come to no other conclusion by using the term preparation day. And this is why the Gospels put that term in there. The Passover is the preparation day and that's why it's in all four of the Gospels. And so we don't run into erroneous conclusions about the day that Christ was crucified, the day that Christ was resurrected, and the Sabbath in between them. And three days and three nights in there. It's an idiomatic expression. We talked about that over at the pulpit. Okay? So the four Gospels are harmonious in this. And it is irrefutable. However, the rest of the Passion Week identifies this as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break it down. Here's what you need to know. Let me get out my great eraser here. It's just a cloth. I'm too cheap to buy an eraser. So I take it outside and I shake it off every day after I get done with this. But here we go. We'll get rid of that. Come right back to the blackboard. Um, here's what you need to know. Paul states that the Feast of first fruits is a picture of the resurrection. If you don't understand that, go back and watch my 23 Leviticus sermons. You're going to get information in those 23 Leviticus sermons or Leviticus 23 sermons that you're not going to get anywhere else. You're going to get all kinds of information. It is right out of the Bible. It's verse by verse. Analyzing the Hebrew, you will get rid of a lot of your presuppositions or the incorrect teachings that you have been given over the years if you watch those Leviticus 23 sermons, okay? He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits. We know that. The Feast of First Fruits was a Sunday. It was the first day of the week. No doubt about that, according to Leviticus 23, verse 15. Here's what it says. 
from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Note, okay, I want you to note this. The Sabbath referred to here is a Saturday. So you're doing the counting and the Sabbath is a Saturday. That is from Leviticus 23. We don't need to go any further there to know that this is correct. Christ rose on a Sunday. That's right there. It's black and white. Anybody that disputes this has not done their due diligence in Leviticus 23. 99% of the people get this right, but they get a lot of other information incorrect. Now, here's the math from the gospel accounts. It's all there. It's all right in black and white, and it's very easy to look up. Okay, first, six days. This is from John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Okay, this would have been a Sabbath day, a Saturday. Now, some people will say, oh, I can't be because it's more than 2,000 meters, and that was more than a Sabbath day's walk. Listen, that's extra biblical stuff. Don't send me emails and argue things that are not in the Bible, okay? That's not the way that we do it. We use the Bible, and it was a Sabbath day. It's very clear from the account. Don't add in extra biblical stuff and say, well, see, blah, blah, blah. We don't do that. We go with the Bible alone. If you're going to go outside of the Bible, then we're not going to be arguing from the same basis. If you have something that I have not included, or if you have something extra that you want to include, it must be from the Bible, or I'm not even going to answer the email because you've already got the information that I'm working with, okay, which is the Bible. Okay, so we have that. The next day, this is the next day, the great crowd had come for the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. That's John 12, 12. This would have been five days before the Passover, okay? This is the next day. That was a Sabbath. This is a Sunday. Not meaning to confuse you with this. I'm just going with the first day of the weeks here, Sabbath and then Sunday, okay? So, that's Palm Sunday as the Passover would have started Thursday night at sundown and ran until Friday night at sundown. Remember, biblical days start at sundown. It goes from evening to evening. That was established right at the very beginning of the Bible, okay? So from sundown to sundown. But John uses, and I will say this again in a minute, but just so you understand, John uses a different time than Mark uses. Mark uses Jewish time John uses Roman time. So when we get ahead in a couple more verses, there's going to be some confusion, and you have to understand that they are using different times when they're giving the description of what's going on. They're talking about the same thing, the same meals, everything, but they're using different times. Okay, so we got that. We have the Sabbath, six days before, which was already identified in John 12, verse 1. It said there, six days before the Passover. That's when he was in Bethany with Lazarus. Sunday. Five days before, this is John 12, 12, and Mark eleven ten. It says, the next day. That's Palm Sunday that's riding the donkey. Go back and refresh yourself. Read the surrounding context, and you'll know that. So you have six days before. You have five days before. Monday, okay? This is four days before. So we have Monday here. It's four days before. Where is it? Mark eleven twelve. Now on the next day. Okay, it says now on the next day. Mark, as I said, is running chronologically. Matthew doesn't always run chronologically, but Mark does. Okay, now on the next day, Jesus cursed the fig tree. That's on this day right here. Okay, that's Tuesday, three days before. This is Mark 11, um, 20, right here. Tuesday, three days before, Mark eleven twenty. 20, now in the morning. 
the withered fig is identified. That's right here, okay? Because they've gone over evening to evening. So you have that day there. Then you have Wednesday, two days before. Okay? The Gospels are silent on what occurred on this day. There is nothing recorded, but that is not a problem because Thursday comes along. One day before. Let me erase that so it's not in your way. I know that's not a very nice eraser, but anyway. Um, Thursday, one day before, the Passover starts at sundown. Mark 14.1 says, after two days. So that's your reference point to show you this. After two days, it was the Passover. This is the first thing that is mentioned since Mark 11.20, which was Tuesday. Okay, so there you have that information that you need. Pay special attention to the fact that in the following accounts that I'm going to read you now, Mark is using Jewish time. I said that a moment ago. This is where it comes in, from sunset to sunset. John is using Roman time, which is from midnight, the same as us. Now, why did John do that? I don't know, but we know that he did it because when you look at the timing of the day, it'll say, like, now in the sixth hour, Christ did this, and now in the ninth hour, Christ did that, and it says in another gospel, a different time, we know that he's using Roman time. When you meld them together, the Roman Jewish time, it comes out with a perfect, absolutely perfect chronology of the events of the crucifixion day. So, Mark 14, 12 says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, here, Mark, like Luke, and you have to get this right or you're going to have a wrong chronology, Mark, like Luke, unites the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he calls the entire thing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Luke does the same thing as well, okay? John 13, verse 1, now before the Feast of Passover, okay? And then you read the account after that. Both Mark and John are speaking of exactly the same day, the meal the washing of the feet, the Garden of Gethsemane. All of those things are on the same day on Mark 14, 12, John 13, 1. Read the surrounding context and you'll see that. It's all the same. Christ was crucified the same 24-hour period, but it was obviously after the final night at the Garden of Gethsemane and then the illegal trial. How do we know this? Mark is speaking of this event from sundown. John is speaking of it in Roman time. And this is obvious because they use the different terminology, which I explained a moment ago, for the exact same meal. Go read the account. Judas, how many times did Judas betray Jesus? One. That's right. You were right. That was very good of you. He did it one time. And in the same context, they're talking about the same thing, but with different time frames. Okay? You cannot miss this and get it right. It's the same thing as using Matthew 12, verse 14 incorrectly. Three days and three nights he's in the belly of the fish. Well, that's explained all the way back in the book of Esther and all the way throughout the Bible as an idiomatic expression. If you get these things wrong, your timing is going to be wrong. It will not follow what the Bible says and never insert something extra biblical and say, well, gee whiz, this tradition says, or somebody's made that up. They're trying to fit something into the biblical record, which is incorrect. Don't listen to that. Okay, so here's how we have it. Six days before a Saturday, right? Five days before is Sunday. Four days before is Monday. Three days before is Tuesday. Two days before is Wednesday. And one day before is Thursday. Guess what? The day of the cross of Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, is Friday. There's no doubt about it. The problem with people believing that John was speaking of a different day, as I already mentioned earlier, 
is that they missed the fact that the terminology for the day is different based on the author. To clear up any misunderstanding here, one needs only to compare the uses for the term preparation day. We went through that. Go back and watch that part of the video again. And once one does this, there are no discrepancies in the accounts at all. So go back and review what I said, and you'll see that clearly. The timeline is set in the Bible. It is set. It cannot be changed. It is black and white. It can be changed by somebody that wants to be a heretic, right? I'm going to take this word out of the Bible. I'm going to insert something non-biblical, and I'm going to present this to the people. That's not the way we do things. The timeline is set. It is irrefutable, and it is the only biblical option. Anything else will either insert unbiblical information, or they will make stuff up, and they will mishandle what is going on with the time of the day, with the day of the week, calling a high Sabbath a second Sabbath, and all of these things which are not scriptural, okay? Based on this biblical evidence which I have given you, there is one, no discrepancy between any of the accounts. Two, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. And three, Jesus rose on a Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday, people. That's why we worship on Sunday is because he rose on Sunday. It's called the Lord's Day in the book of Revelation when John was in prayer, right? He rose. He came out of the grave by God and praise God. He rose. This is why we worship the risen Christ, and this is why he is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4, 3. Go read that verse. Hebrews 4, verse 3. Christ is our Sabbath rest. We're not obligated to take a Saturday and observe that all day. There's no Catholic conspiracy that says that Christ worshiping him on a Sunday is some type of whatever Catholic conspiracy. There's no such thing. The Bible records that Jesus Christ rose on a Sunday and we are worshiping a risen Savior who has fulfilled all of the pictures of the Sabbath, all of them. He is our Sabbath rest. Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 14 that we can worship on any day of the week we want or no day of the week if we want. We're not under any obligation. In Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17, he says, why are you observing these feasts? Why are you observing these Sabbaths? He says they are a shadow of the things to come. Well, let me ask you something. If you are worshiping and holding on to a shadow and somebody comes and takes the substance, what are you left with? You're not even left with a shadow. They have the substance. The substance is Christ. Christ is the substance. When you take away Christ, you take away the shadow as well, and you are wasting your time, and you are wasting your faith. Please come to Jesus Christ in the grace of Jesus Christ and be fulfilled as a Christian, not observing the law of Moses, not observing any of these crazy things that people have taught you, but an actual account of what is going on in the Bible showing that Christ was crucified on a Friday, he was raised on a Sunday, and then from there we worship the risen Lord, okay? We worship the risen Lord. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week. We remember his death until he comes. Well, if he died and stayed dead, then we wouldn't be waiting for him to come back, but we are waiting for him to come back. Praise God, we are. Okay, there's one other thing I want to add in. I've already proved definitively that this is the timeline that the Bible shows us. But please don't believe, as some have claimed, that Christ rode a donkey into Jerusalem on a Saturday instead of a Sunday. This would have been a Sabbath, folks. If he did this, he would have violated the very law that he wrote and gave to the people of Israel. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5, verse 12 through 14. 
Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now, some people will say he ate grain off of the, off of the uh, stalks walking in the field with his apostles, right, or disciples. And it was actually them that did it. But then he gave the account of the bread. He said, listen, haven't you read in the law where David took the showbread, which wasn't lawful for him? That was because the needs of the man are greater than the needs of the bread itself, okay? It's just like you said, if you have an ox that's in a, uh, what do you call it, a, a pit, on a Sunday, you're going to pull them out to take them out. The needs outweigh the law itself in certain circumstances. But guess what? There was not a need for him to ride a donkey on the Sabbath day. And in fact, what would they have done if he did that? They would have stoned him because that is contrary to the law. And he would have violated the law, spent all of this time building up to his incarnation, becoming incarnate, fulfilling the law perfectly, and then blowing it the week before he was supposed to die for the sins of the world. That did not happen. So please don't believe that. That is untrue. That's something that's been put out there to justify a wrong day as well. The Bible record itself stands and Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath, okay? So let me go ahead and walk back to the pulpit and we'll close for the day. Okay, now I want you to know that I may be in church while this is being played. I may not be in church. It all depends. I've got somewhere to go. I don't want anybody to know this in advance because I don't ever want people to know my wife is alone or, you know, things like that. Things come up. So that's why I've done this in advance. And I hope that you've learned something today. I hope that you will not be deluded by all of these Hebrew Roots Movement people that keep saying you have to observe the law of Moses, that there is a second Sabbath and there is a second Passover meal and all of these traditions and things that are untrue. Just disregard that and stick to the Bible. This is the Bible here. It's 1,189 chapters of joy. It is the most wonderful book in the world, and people will spend a lot of time making stuff up. They will spend a lot of time getting stuff that isn't biblical or mishandling this precious word in order to deceive people, in order to put them into bondage, in order to, you know, meet their own agendas. We can't do that. This is the word of God, and we need to be very careful with it. Now, once again, before we close, I want to remind you, we're in Esther. You're going to learn some things in Esther that are absolutely astonishing. Absolutely. There are a couple of things that have never been revealed ever in the history of the world that one of my friends, Sergio, found in the book of Esther based on some computer programs he was running. So we'll see those in there and all kinds of other wonderful information. You will love the book of Esther. But I would suggest to you that instead of watching 15 Prophecy Updates a week, you go down to 14 or maybe 13 and watch a few good sermons a week. Pick a church that has good theology, attend that church, and if you want to see the substance of the Bible, we go line by line by line in Scripture. We started with Genesis 1, verse 1. We just finished the book of Leviticus. In between each book of the uh, Law of Moses, we take a little book and we do it. So we're in Esther, but we're going to go back to the book of Numbers soon. And we analyze the Hebrew. Everything is taken in proper context. Nothing is added in unless we say this is a tradition or this is a scholar's commentary. But please study to show yourself approved. 
Don't get misled by people. Don't get into what Paul calls endless genealogies and all of these arguments that people like to get into. Stick to the word of God, this precious treasure which he has given us. And so I'd like to close by saying, from Sarasota, Florida, to Ulaan Bitar, Mongolia, I am Charlie Garrett. This precious church, which I am honored to pastor, is the superior word. And that is your prophecy update for the week.